Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instrument and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we love you. We thank you that our hearts would even want to reach out to you in praise. For there was a time when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We had no affinity for the things that mattered in life. But thank you for your grace that changes everything. We thank you that when you save us, you save us forever. That you never abandon us. That you have committed yourself to forming Christ in us. And so as we study your word, one of the more challenging passages in all the Bible. Help us to gird up our loins for action. To pay close attention. To grasp as much as we can understand. And apply it accordingly. So help me, fill me, speak through me. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very first book in the New Testament. And if you are joining us for the first time, uh, before we begin our next verse-by-verse exposition of a book of the Bible, I'm in a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 12th message in this series. Right now, we're focusing on the events that will unfold during the Great Tribulation, that will culminate with Christ's second coming to the earth. Maybe just to help us visualize where we've been and where we're going, as this chart helps you to see. There we go. (laughs) Uh, You can see right now we're in a time frame known as the church age. Uh, God is building his church. The church was not found in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament phenomenon. And the next great event on God's schedule is the rapture, the catching up. When suddenly the Lord will take his people off the earth. And then the 70th week shortly later of the prophecy we're going to study, it's called the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, will unfold. It's seven years in length. And that seven-year time frame we'll see is divided into two halves. At the end of the seven-year-plus period, because the seven-year period doesn't begin with the rapture of the church, it begins with the signing of the peace treaty that we're going to study this morning. But when that seven years is over, Jesus comes back to the earth. First, he comes to catch up his people in the air. Then he returns literally to the earth. He'll fulfill the Old Testament prophecies where the Messiah will rule and reign. The length of that reign is given to us in the New Testament is a thousand years. The end of the thousand years, well, we'll study it when we get there. I told you this was going to be a 15-week series. It might be 20 or 25, so stay with me, all right? And we'll go all the way into eternity future. Now, we started with the rapture of the church. That's where we began in this series. The rapture is a signless event. No prophecies have ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and catch up his church. He certainly could have done it in the 5th century or the 10th century, but he did not. You say, well, what if he did it around 500 A.D.? Then he would have to regather the Jewish people from across the world and bring them back into the land. And he certainly could have done that if he had so chosen. But he waited nearly 2,000 years 
before he began to regather Israel, and that's significant. Even the Orthodox Jews across Israel believe that we are close to the Messiah's return. Why? Because they know their Bibles. They know that at the end of time, God would put the Jewish people back in the land and rebirth them as a nation. Many Orthodox Jews today, though they are still in unbelief and that they have not called upon Jesus to save them, they are more prophetically alert than, I'm afraid, the average evangelical Christian. So right now, we're in that time frame called the seven-year tribulation. And there's a chapter in Scripture that's dedicated to that. It's Matthew 24. We studied the first 14 verses, and we'll pick up again this morning on verse 15. It's a mid-event. It happens right in the middle of this seven-year period. That's why we knew verses 4 through 14 of that chapter applied to the first half of the tribulation, because the abomination of desolation that we'll study this morning happens right in the middle of that seven-year time frame. Here's another chart to help us to maybe visualize it again. 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's a week of years, as we'll see, or seven years long. It's divided into two halves. And when the abomination of desolation takes place, things really, really get bad. I hope you have your Bible opened here to Matthew 24. And again, what we've done so far is we studied verses 4 through 14, and one of the themes in that concerns false prophets and false Christ. And we went back in our last session and zoomed in on that because there's going to be uh, more and more false teaching and false prophets as we move to the end of the age. And so we studied the entire book of Jude in our last session. Today, we're going to focus and key off of verse 15. And beginning now in Matthew 24, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then, when the abomination of desolation takes place, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now remember the context. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He had been teaching the masses earlier. Then four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, asked him a question about the destruction of the temple and about his return from heaven. And one of the things that Jesus mentions, and this is the longest answer to any question ever recorded in Scripture that his disciples ask, he speaks of the abomination of desolation. Now, these were men who studied the prophet Daniel. They knew precisely what Jesus meant by that phrase. Maybe we're not so sure. Maybe you think the abomination of desolation is your husband or maybe your wife, but uh, it concerns a person. And so we're going to spend three weeks on precisely what the abomination of desolation is. And to help us, It comes from Daniel's prophecy. It's mentioned three times in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, I will tell you, it's one of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible. (laughs) Most pastors would never preach it. They think, well, the people can't get it. Well, you can get it. 
It may take a few sessions in further study for you to get it, but you can get it. Now, will you get it all? No. You know, teaching the Bible is like, well, it's like math. You teach a child their numbers and how to add, multiply, and you teach them long division and algebra and trigonometry and calculus. Well, Daniel 9 is calculus. <laughs> but, but let's get what we can because in every message, there's something for you, there's something for me, there's something for all of us that God wants us to apply. Now, Daniel 9, I suppose, is really the high point in all the prophecies that Daniel gives most would consider it the Mount Everest of his prophetic schedule. It's really the schematic for the book of Revelation, which is why we taught Daniel before we taught Revelation. And Daniel 9 really is God's outline. It's God's blueprint for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And it's a clear picture of how God will culminate human history up until the time of the second coming. Now, have you ever thought about all the people since the Jews have become a nation who've wanted to destroy and to annihilate them. They are the single most opposed ethnicity in the history of the world. But you cannot destroy them because just as God used the Jewish people to bring the first coming, he will use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming. And prophecy is really history pre-written. And this is one of the greatest prophecies here in Daniel chapter 9. So let me uh, first give the broad context and then we'll zoom in. Here is a chart of the book of Daniel I made many years ago. In Daniel chapters 1 through 6, the theme is Daniel and his personal friends. 7 through 12 concerns Daniel and his people's future. 1 through 6 is largely history with a little prophecy sprinkled in. Daniel 7, 9 through 10 is largely prophecy with a little bit of history sprinkled in. Uh, the first six chapters are described in the third person. The final section is described in the first person because these are visions, not that someone else was given, that Daniel needed to interpret. These were visions that God personally gave him. And what's interesting is that all of the prophecies starting in chapter 7 chronologically fit in and around the events of chapters 1 through 6. So there's four visions or four dreams in 7 through 12. Again, they're not someone else's. They were given specifically to Daniel. Now let's zoom in on Daniel 9. You might want to turn there because we're going to spend the rest of our time there. Again, if you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. That's about dead center. If you open your Bible to the center point, you'll be in Psalms and scan to the right and you will soon hit the book of Daniel. Uh, it might be useful to you as you learn your way around to use the table of contents. Don't be embarrassed by that. So in the first 19 verses of this chapter, Daniel is agonizing in prayer and in fasting. And he is seeking for God's uh, forgiveness over the sins of Israel. And he wants to understand what's going to happen after the captivity. Remember, God had prophesied that the Jewish people would go into captivity, that God would use the Babylonians as his servant, as his instrument. And so they were there for 70 years. And Daniel recognizes, like, we're moving towards the end of these 70 years. And he knows it's 70 years because Jeremiah 25, among other places, predicts that that's how long the captivity will be. And by the way, Daniel interpreted prophecy literally. When Jeremiah said 70 years, he knew that he meant 70 years. 
And sadly, there are a lot of evangelical Christians who apply a different interpretation principle to prophecy that you don't find. We find in the Scripture how to interpret the Scripture by the way the different prophets interact with each other, and by the way the New Testament apostles and the Lord Himself interacts with the Old Testament. And so beginning in verse 20 until the end of the chapter, God brings the answer to Daniel's prayer. Starting at verse 20, Daniel has this encounter with the man or the angel Gabriel. Angels always appear as males in Scripture, so he's rightly called the man Gabriel. Look at verse 21. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme-weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, Daniel's prayer life reveals two truths to me. Number one, though he had been in Babylon for nearly 70 years, Babylon did not shape his life. To use a New Testament idiom, we often say, well, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Well, Daniel had been there for 70 years, but he's still a very godly man, 500 miles away from the place of worship. Secondly, the time of his prayer, the time of the evening offering. Why is that significant? Because that's when they came and they offered a sacrifice because you knew that you approached God on the basis of blood. And he understood that he had no merit of his own, neither do we. Old Testament Jews were not saved by animal sacrifices. They just prefigured what the Messiah would ultimately accomplish. They were looking forward by symbol to what the Savior would do as we look back to what he has already done. But none of us can come apart from the basis of blood. They pictured, they foreshadowed the once and for all sacrifice, and that's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. We're affirming His righteousness is the means by which we can approach the Father and the Spirit. Verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding to the vision. Daniel, kind of like David, is a man after God's own heart. He's much like the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. Verse 23 says, you are highly esteemed. The ESV says, you're greatly loved. The Net Bible says, you are of great value. The CSB says, for you are treasured by God. So while the Bible does not teach that God has favorites, nonetheless, this man is called highly esteemed. He is greatly beloved. Does that mean that God loved Daniel more than others? Certainly not. God does not have favorites, but God does have intimates. Last time, if you were here, we looked and studied the book of Jude, which is really a picture of how to spot false teaching, false Christ, and so forth. And in Jude verse 21, he admonishes us to keep yourselves in God's love. Or you could say, remain in the sphere of God's love. Now, for saved people, he's not talking about God somehow loving you more. You cannot do anything to make God love you more, and you cannot do anything to make God love you any less. He loves you, John 17 says, as much as he loves his own son. 
But God wants to change you not so he can love you, but because he loves you, he wants to change you. He wants to make you and I like the Lord Jesus. And so obedience is the proof of our love. And so as Proverbs 3.22 says that God is intimate with the upright. God has no favorites, but he has intimates. I've come to tell you, Gabriel says to Daniel, I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. He's not yet received the vision, he's going to tell him the vision. He wants information concerning the Babylonian captivity. And he's going to tell him about the year the Messiah will come, He's going to tell him about some events that will follow after the Messiah all the way until the second coming of Christ. Most consider verses 24 through 7 here, here of the book of Daniel, the backbone of all biblical prophecy. I preached four sermons just on these verses, and I'm going to do one sermon today. So strap on your seatbelts and hold on. In verse 24, if you'll look at verse 24... He speaks of six future events, and each event is introduced by a Hebrew infinitive. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So he's, he's going to give the whole prophecy, all 70 weeks, to finish the transgression, to finish, that's the first infinitive, to make an end, number two, of sin, to make atonement, number three, for iniquity, to bring in, number four, everlasting righteousness, to seal up... Number, Number five, the vision and prophecy into anoint the most holy place. Now, it's important that we understand what he means by 70 weeks. I see some of you don't have a Bible. I'm assuming you don't own one. You should come to the next meet the pastor. You cannot grow off of your little electronic phone. Trust me. I had one of the first electronic Bibles in the world. I was asked to be a tester myself and a handful of other people. Today, it's called Logos. You'll never grow up on an electronic Bible. You need a paper copy. I promise you, it will help you to really absorb God's Word. And if you have the NASB in your lap, you'll see the little number one before the little word weeks. Do you see that? And when it's of significance, they'll put that there. And if you go out into the margin, it will tell you its literal meaning. 77s. The word Shavuah means seven. So every time in these verses you see the word weeks, it's in reference to seven. Now this word Shavuah is a lot like our word dozen. If I said 70 dozen have been given to you, you'd ask 70 dozen of what? And so when we read 77s literally have been decreed, you're going to ask 77s of what? Now, in most English Bibles, it does not say 77s, but it says 70 weeks, trying to help us to grasp it. But even that might be a little bit confusing to us as English readers, because when we think of weeks, we think of a seven-day week. But in the Old Testament, there was not only a week of seven days, there was a year of seven days. And under the divinely inspired calendar, God had a seven-day week, and on the seventh day, they rested. It was the Sabbath. God also had a week of years where on the seventh year, they allowed the land to lie fallow. You might want to put out in the margin Leviticus 25, 3 and 4. You farmed the piece of land for six years, 
And in the seventh year, you let it rest. You had to trust God for your provision, but you let the land rest. So the designation week of years was a common designation. Now, why are they in Babylon for 70 years? Many of you already know because you've studied other Old Testament prophets with me. They're there because for 490 years, they disobeyed Leviticus 25. They did not on the seventh year let the land rest. And after 490 years of disobedience, and their disobedience led to idolatry, God said, I'm going to let the land rest for 70 years. And so it's not surprising. Here they are at the end of that 70 years, and Daniel's thinking, well, what's next? Are we going to back to Jerusalem? Is the Messiah going to return? And so just as God has dealt with 490 years in the past, now he's going to move to 490 years in the future, which again, contextually, it's clear he's not dealing with weeks of days, but weeks of years. So let's read verses 25 through 27 so we have a feel for where we're going. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So let me give an overview of these 77s on this chart. There's a decree to rebuild and destroy and to rebuild the sanctuary in the city. Remember, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he flattened the place, totally destroyed it. A decree is going to go out to rebuild it, and there'll be a total of 69 weeks of years, as again we'll see, and the Messiah will come. Jesus is his name. He will come. God gives a mathematical prophecy on the time frame of when Messiah will come. There's a reason those wise men, probably no doubt from Babylon and influenced by Daniel, knew that they were in the time frame of the Messiah because of the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy. He comes to his own, his own receives him not. And Jesus addressed this. And so right now he has laid aside Israel, has not abandoned them, he's building his church. So we're in this interval between the 69th and the 70th week. After the church is raptured, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy will unfold and that's divided into two halves into uh, three and a half years each with an event that we're focusing on in these three weeks called the abomination of desolation. So verse 24 begins by giving us the scope. We're told of these six distinct events with these six Hebrew infinitives. Gabriel recognizes that Daniel's not one who's interested in summaries and sketches. He wants to know details. And God is going to give him details, and I'm grateful that he did. And so in verse 25, he underscores what happens in the first 483 years. 
Then there's this gap of time in verse 26, and then he will unfold what will happen in the last seven years. So beginning at verse 25, God gives us the starting point of the plan. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. Remember, this section is not the milk of the word. This is a very meaty passage. And don't worry if you don't get it all the first time. Look, I'm still pouring over it in my own heart year after year, trying to understand it more fully. I haven't arrived by any stretch. But get what you can get and let God speak to your heart. The first seven sevens, remember 70 weeks, not of days, but of years, or 49 years. Then he speaks to the second part with 62 years, or 62 sevens, or 62 times seven is 483 years. And then the last is one seven, or seven Hebrew years. So God tells us there'll be seven weeks in 62 weeks for a total of 69 weeks from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And since the context indicates that he's not speaking weeks of days, but weeks of years, we want to think through, well, how did this happen? Well, there was a guy by the name of Artaxerxes, and he issued a decree to rebuild the temple and the city. And history records that it took 49 years. So not only does the Bible prophesy it, history records that's precisely how long it took. And we'll see before we're done, the critics hate the book of Daniel. They say no one could have known this in advance. Well, if you start with certain liberal presuppositions that God can't foretell the future or reveal it to man, then you have to come up with secular reasoning. And so he gave a command. In fact, that's a firm date. Um, I used to have a copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I guess nobody has encyclopedias anymore. But you could go to the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it would date it as March the 14th, 445 B.C., or in the Jewish calendar, Nisan 1, 445 B.C. Now, a Jewish year, a Jewish prophetic year, is 360 days. They do not use a solar calendar. They use a solar slash lunar calendar, which is actually far more precise than the way we did it. If you remember centuries ago, it seemed like, hmm, it's kind of cold for this time of year. I think it's supposed to be a summer. And people realized that they were like off in the calendar, and so they restructured it. Well, the Jews weren't off. Because God had given a divine calendar, and I have a whole message on that. It's a sermon in itself. So if you take 483 years and multiply it by 360, you come up with 173,880 days, and I have a whole message on this if this is something you're interested in. And where does it bring you to? It brings you to April the 6th, 32 AD, the day Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now notice what is to happen after Palm Sunday in verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. After the 62 weeks, that's like saying after the 69th week, the Messiah will be karat, cut off. It's a Hebrew term for execution. He is going to be executed and have nothing. 
he will not have the kingdom. And that's Matthew chapter 13. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, the Jews commit a heinous sin. They attribute the miracles to Jesus as coming from the devil. And Jesus says they commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 13 tells the kingdom parables. In light of the fact that the leaders, and for the most part the people, he came to his own, his own received him not, rejected him. What about the coming kingdom? So in Matthew 13 in the kingdom parables, he describes this interim time called the church age, and God will pick up later this coming kingdom. So right here in the Old Testament, we have the prophecy that the Messiah is going to be killed, he's going to be executed, and then this kingdom is going to be postponed. And so this prophecy points to the crucifixion. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he had wept on Sunday, brokenhearted over the people. He said, this was your day, this very day. The 173,880th day of Daniel's prophecy. And you missed it. And five days later, he's crucified. So you know after Palm Sunday, the people are shouting, hail him, hail him, hail him. And a few days later, they're shouting, nail him, nail him. Because he was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. Again, verse 26, that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the seven weeks and then after the 62 weeks, two events are going to happen. The people of the prince who is to come is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now we're told here in verse 26, after Messiah dies... This city is going to be destroyed. And 38 years later, God does precisely that. The Roman general, Titus, who later becomes an emperor, totally decimates this city. Do you remember what Jesus had said in Luke 19? We studied it a few weeks back. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He is reading right off of the prophet Daniel. The city is going to be destroyed. Why did God wait 38 years? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One, it was the patience of God giving every Jew possible in a, the opportunity to respond. And two, it was an affirmation. Because remember, here are the disciples, the first verse of the New... You know, Jesus never read the New Testament. <laughs> uh, he, he preached everything from the Old Testament, right? And so they're speaking, hey, the Messiah, this is what Daniel said. And he also said there's one coming who's, after he's crucified, who's going to destroy this place. Remember, to be a prophet of God, and Jesus served in three offices, prophet, priest, and king. You had to tell a short-term prophecy, and you had to tell a long-term prophecy. The only reason you could tell that a person's long-term prophecy was valid is their short-term prophecy came true. So 38 years later, people are saying, you know, he has got to be the Messiah. 
And more Jews were converted at the destruction of Jerusalem, as history again records. And so, again, here's an overview of the 70 weeks in terms of where we're coming. And let me just say parenthetically, if you're Jewish and you're listening to me somewhere in the world, and we have some people on occasion who live stream from Israel, if you're looking for a good candidate for the Messiah, his name is Yeshua. He came precisely when he was supposed to come. He was cut off. He was crucified, and the city was destroyed. So here's an overview. Daniel 9.24, you have the entire 70 weeks prophecy, all 490 years. Daniel 9.25, he deals with the first 483 years or 69 weeks. Daniel 9.26, that's the gap. Christ is building his church. And then 9.27, the 70th week, which will last for seven years. Now, in this verse of Scripture, God is prophesying the destruction of Israel after the 69th week. No wonder Jesus wept. It was one of the most horrendous events that took place in history. Women, children, slaughtered. People tried to escape. The Romans crucified over 100,000 Jewish people. There were so many people crucified, Josephus records they ran out of trees in which to crucify them. He's saying this holy place is going to be destroyed and then it's going to be characterized by war and by desolation, even to the end. And if you know anything about human history, the single most contested piece of real estate on the earth is the 35 acres we call the Temple Mount. And so right after Palm Sunday, the last day of the 69th week, when the leadership officially rejected him, there was a timeout. God didn't abandon Israel. There was a timeout for Israel. The clock stopped ticking. And again, if you know Bible prophecy, you know that many times in a single verse of Scripture, God gives the scope of both comings of the Messiah. Most of us know, you know, a baby will be born. His name will be called Mighty God and so forth. And the governments will rest on his shoulders. When pray tell did that happen? Hadn't happened yet. That's his second coming. When Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and he quotes Isaiah 61, he quotes half a verse. Because the second half of the verse deals with his second coming. And so there's very often, even in the visions that Daniel has been given, gaps between different prophetic events, and this is no exception. So if you've just read the history of the Temple Mount for the last 2,000 years, you know that what Daniel said would indeed happen, and it did happen. Now again, God scattered the Jews to all the nations of the world. And Jesus cannot come back, he said, until, remember we studied this, let me read it to you again, Matthew 23, 39, right before the Olivet Discourse, it's the lead into that, for I say to you, because of their rejection, from now on you will not see me until, until implies that there's a change that is going to come. You will not see me until you say, Baruch Hababa Shem Aranai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came in the name of Yahweh, and until the Jewish people recognize that he is the Messiah, the second coming can't happen. So these uh, supersessionists, 
theologians, we call them replacement theologians, that the church has superseded Israel. It comes out of Augustine into Roman Catholicism and out of some of the Protestant reformers who were influenced a lot by Roman Catholic theology. They got the gospel right, but they were wrong in a lot of areas. And these people say, well, there's no future for Israel. May I remind you the clear words of Jesus. He cannot, he cannot come back until the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he not only warns of this future destruction, he warns of this future time of blessing. And one of the functions as we're going to study in this series of the Great Tribulation is to bring the Jewish people to faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the function of the 70th week. So today we're going to examine the abomination of desolation. What is it? We'll look at the specifics as how it's committed next time. And then we'll look at the coming implications in the weeks that will follow. In all of these three messages, we need to ask, what difference does this make to me? It's in the Word of God. All Scripture is profitable. It's here for a reason. Now, that's all by way of introduction, all right? Say, so when's he going to get started? All right, three simple truths. First, the ruler, the ruler that is revealed. Verse 27 describes the coming Antichrist. And there are three truths about this coming Antichrist that he unfolds. First, the ruler that is revealed. Let's uh, read verse 27 in its entirety, and then we'll step back through it. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, or you could say in the middle of the seven, remember whenever you see the word week, it's seven, is notated there in your NASB. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So during this final week, during this final weeks of years, or seven years, there's a period of time in which he will make a firm covenant with the many. So contextually, we want to ask, who is the he? Well, while we don't know his specific name, We know his role in his office. And so the nearest antecedent to the pronoun he, if you look back in verse 26, you could circle the word he if you want and draw an arrow to the prince who is to come. It's in reference to the prince who is to come. Let me read the first half of verse Uh, 26 again. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after seven weeks and after 62 weeks, two events are specifically told that will happen. First, he will be executed, he'll be crucified, and then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel recorded that the city that contains the sanctuary, namely the city of Jerusalem, would be destroyed, who? By the people of the prince who is to come. Now, 2020 is always hindsight. Daniel didn't know that they would be named Romans, but he predicts their empire with great specificity that would only fit the Roman Empire. And he also looks further down the corridors of time to a revived Roman Empire and the ten toes of his statue. But we know specifically who these people were. 38 years later, the Roman general Titus came in, and he destroyed, indeed, the sanctuary. So the Antichrist is the he here in verse 27, 
For again, Daniel is looking down the corridors of time. And the Bible is clear, both by the prophet Daniel, by the words of Jesus, and by the revelation, that this prince who is to come will come from a revived Roman empire of 10 nations or 10 kings or 10 horns. Unless you think that this is some contrived interpretation, (laughs) we'll see before we're done this morning that this is what Jesus taught. All right, so first there's the ruler who is revealed. He is the prince who is to come, and the prince who is to come comes from this people who destroy, indeed, the sanctuary in the city. Second, there is a covenant that is made. Beyond the prince who is revealed, there is a covenant that is made. Again, we read here at the start of verse 27, and he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So this verse is highlighting this coming prince who is to come, who's going to try to mimic the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus. During the final seven years, he's going to make a firm covenant with the many. Now, if you've read the book of Daniel, especially Daniel chapters 11 and 12, the many, the articular use of it, the many, repeatedly refers to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. Now, a few English translations leave out the article. It just says many, but in the Hebrew text, like here in the NASB, it says the many, because he's referring specifically to a covenant with the Jewish people. Now, don't forget, God predicted in the previous verse, Messiah would be cut off or executed. That happened in 32 AD. He also predicted in verse 26 that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy both the city and the sanctuary. So after Christ was cut off 38 years later, the Roman legions came in and destroyed the place. And just as Jesus had prophesied, not one stone would be left upon another. And indeed, he came in with a flood. We'll see the usage of that term. It's used in Isaiah of a strong, mighty, powerful army. And it was brutal what they did in 70 AD. And there was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Bar Kokhba. You speak of the Bar Kokhba revival. And in 132 to 135, he claims to be the Messiah. And he gathers tens of thousands of Jews to go back and fight against the Romans. And the Romans crush those Jewish people The Emperor Hadrian wipes out 500,000 Jewish people. He renames the place after their enemy. It's no longer called Israel. Their enemy, the Philistines, he, he renamed it Palestinia or Palestine. By the way, the word Palestine never appears in the Bible, either the Old or the New Testament, to describe this land mass. But the Brits and centuries before that carried this name Palestine to describe this geographical area. Now, let me say parenthetically that this group of people that Yasser Arafat invented called the Palestinians is indeed an invented people. There's no such thing. In fact, you don't have to dip back very far into history to realize that both Jews and Arabs who lived in the land of Israel were called Palestinians. But there's no such people known as Palestinians, but because they want to deny the right of Israel to own the property that God gave them, 
they created this dichotomy in the thinking. But one of the most dramatic things that God is doing is he is regathering the Jewish people back to fulfill the final episodes that will lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so when Bar-Kokba, Bar-Kokba, uh led this revolt, they were crushed. In fact, they even renamed the city of Jerusalem. He hated the Jewish people, Hadrian, despised them. We'll rename the land, we'll rename the capital, and every Jew needs to leave, with a few exceptions. Now, here's a slide that will help you to see what God has been doing in the last hundred years or so. In 1880, the Zionist movement began. What was that? That was a movement of Orthodox Jews who said, God said, he gave us the land of Israel, we need to go back to Israel. So when demographics were first kept in 1880, about the formation of the movement, there were 25,000 Jews living in Israel. At the time, there were 7.8 million Jews living on the planet. Then uh, Hitler, if you remember, annihilated 6 million of the then 15 million Jews that were living on the planet. And we had boatloads of Jews come to America. And our own president said, you're not welcomed. Some of you have been to Yad Vashem or even the Washington Holocaust Museum. You've seen the letters. You're not welcomed. They went back and they were annihilated in the gas chambers. Wherever they went, they weren't welcomed. They said, let's go back to our land. So God often uses the wrath of man to praise him. So on the day they became a nation, a day that was prophesied in Isaiah 66, there were 600,000 Jews living in Israel. A hundred million people around them who hated them. And the next day they were under attack, but God supernaturally preserved them. God keeps gathering the Jewish people. And now we've just recently crested the seven million mark of Jews living in the land. But the fact that the Bible predicts the Jewish people will return is amazing, and we are seeing that in our day. Jeremiah 16, 15 reminds us that much of it would happen via persecution. Why are the Jews leaving Western Europe in droves? Because of the growing anti-Semitic movement there. And God putting a call into many of their hearts. Jeremiah said, I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. And then in the next verse, he said, behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares Yahweh, and they will fish for them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and from the clefts of the rock. So this metaphor for persecution is expressed here by fishermen and hunters. And God has certainly used the persecution on the Jewish people in the last hundred years, whether it was the Polish economic discrimination or the czarist pogroms or the Nazi genocide or the Arab hatred in other countries, and even most recently, the invasion of Russia. The Ukrainian Jews are some of the richest people in all the Ukraine. I think I've made some 40 trips now to the Ukraine. They're the best off. In fact, they are the best leaders. (laughs) 
When you get a Jew who runs for politics, that's what the Ukrainians want. Why? Because they won't rip the people off. They're leaving in droves. The Bible college this church built has been housing them for months. They come through, they spend the night, they go to a border, they cross over, they get on a plane, they go to Israel. And so God has used, like fishermen and hunters, even complacent people who are so wealthy, why do we ever want to leave? He uses persecution, and he brings them back into the land. Now, I know that there are brothers in Christ like R.C. Sproul and John Piper. God bless them. I love them in the Lord. But those two men, along with Vadi Bauckham and scores of others, have taught that God has no future for Israel that the churches replace Israel, that we are the new Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reemergence of Israel back into the land was predicted by God. Again, Jesus said he cannot come back until physical, literal Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to these words from Isaiah 43. Before Jesus returns, the prophet said, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Not from Babylon, the ends of the earth. 800 years before Christ, Ezekiel predicted their regathering. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said in the 36th chapter. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. He tells us this regathering happens at the end of time. We studied the battle of Gog and Magog in this series. And in Ezekiel 38, God said, after many days... You will be summoned. He's talking about God summoning countries like Russia and Iran and Turkey, the three leading nations that will come against Israel at the end of time. And he'll put a hook in them. He'll hook them in the latter years, a phrase used by the prophets and by Moses to describe the time frame right at the end before Messiah comes. That's why the Jews believe that Messiah's coming is soon. Why? Because God said at the very end of time, he gathered them from across the planet and makes them a nation. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. For the enemies of Israel to come and attack Israel in the latter years, they have to be a nation. They have to be gathered from many nations. The prophet Zechariah, he lives about 480 years before Christ. He predicted their scattering and their regathering. He said in the 10th chapter, when I scatter them among the people, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. Moses made this similar prediction all the way back in Deuteronomy 30. If you are outcast at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back into the land which your fathers possessed. And then in the next verse he said, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So as remarkable as the prophetic fulfillment of God's regathering the Jewish people in the land, they're still largely in unbelief. 
Now, most Jews have a respect for the Tanakh, the Old Testament, but only about a third are practicing. But even the third that are practicing, they're still uncircumcised in heart. And Moses said, you're going to have your heart circumcised. Paul uses the same kind of description in Romans 2. Ezekiel does the same thing. First, you're going to be gathered physically from across the earth. And then in the next chapter, in that valley of dry bones, God is going to renew you spiritually. He's going to make those skeletons rattle. And he's going to put new life in you, which tells us we're moving towards the beginning of the end. Now, again, God is setting the stage for the final plan, and most American evangelicals are fast asleep. Verse 27, and he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. In other words, the Antichrist is going to come and say, I'm your man. I'll take care of you. Follow after me. I'll protect you. And the word make a firm is a Hebrew, a single Hebrew word that means a mighty, a strong, or a great covenant. And he's going to give them some guarantees. The Jewish people have fought for their survival. And when we were there for the 70th anniversary, they marched through the streets, hundreds of them singing, we are going to rebuild the temple. We are going to rebuild the temple. And they're going to. Because what we're going to read in this prophecy needs a rebuilt temple. Some of you have been with me in Israel. We don't go every trip, but on that particular year we went. This is the Temple Institute. You go in there, you see all of the... Um, furniture, all of the priestly garbs that have been reproduced for the priests, for the Kohens. Uh, they're learning how to carry out the sacrificial system outside of the city of Jerusalem, actually in the hills of Bethlehem. They set up a mock, so to speak, animal sacrifices, learning how to do it. Now, they don't understand that the once and for all sacrifice has been done for them. But all the furniture you will find right in this building, with the exception of a now $50 million menorah made out of solid gold, as God specified. And there's one piece of furniture you won't find in there, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's conspicuously missing. But in their presentation, they will tell you, because we know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so in the late 1940s, there were two Jewish rabbis of great integrity. They said, we saw it. Here is where it is. Now, again, follow me here. God had already revealed in Daniel 8.25 that the Antichrist will come through ease. Let me read that passage to you. And through his shrewdness, talking about the Antichrist, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He'll come with this peace plan. He will even oppose the prince of peace, that's the Messiah, the true Messiah, and he will be broken without human agency. So he comes with shrewdness. He comes with deceit. He magnifies himself in his heart. He, he is drunken with a feeling of power. He comes with braggadocious words. He'll challenge this one called Jesus of Nazareth. He is not your Messiah, I'm it. Because there'll be people preaching during this time, of course, 144,000 Jews and so forth. Listen to what the revelation says of this man. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months, just like Daniel says, 42 months or three and a half years was given to him. 
And so in the middle of this seven-year period, he says, I'm the man. And he'll be destroyed at the end of three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell on the earth. So he'll come with a time of ease, peace. Folks will love him. He'll come with all kinds of miracles and wonders. Maybe the war of Gog and Magog will be enough because so many millions of Muslims will be wiped out off the planet by God himself. Maybe that's all it will take, but when this guy comes with great deception, he will have their temple rebuilt, and it just needs to be up and running by the middle point. Now, one last point. Don't glaze over on me. Some of you, (laughs) you can get this. Stay with me. So there's this evil king who is revealed. There's this evil promise that is ratified, and finally, there's this promise that is broken. This promise that is broken. Let's read all of verse 27, then we'll step through it. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, there's a forest of theology. Let's look at the first half of verse 27. He'll make a firm covenant with the many, that's the Jewish people, for one week. Remember, this is week of years, one seven or seven years. Now, There are some, again, they're called amillennialists. They don't know what to do with the future of Israel. And so they make no gap between the 69th and 70th week because there's no future for Israel. There can't be a gap. So they make all 70 weeks chronological with no break in between. There's five problems with that. One, the people of the prince who is to come is not the Messiah. He is a Roman. And when Jesus came, he didn't destroy the temple in 70 AD. The Romans did. I mean, that's just kind of stupid, I hate to say. Number two, if Christ made a covenant, he's not a liar. He's a covenant-keeping God. He wouldn't break the covenant. Number three, if it's contiguous with the first 69 weeks, then it would end with the stoning of Stephen. And that dog just won't hunt. Uh, In addition, there are many examples, both inside and outside of the book of Daniel, where God puts large gaps of time between prophecy, as Jesus himself did when he went into the synagogue there in Nazareth, and it ended up them wanting to throw him off a cliff. And number five, Jesus quotes this very verse. Jesus is the greatest expositor of Scripture. And he quotes Matthew 24, 15 in relation to his second coming. Now, again, what do the amillennials do? They say there is no tribulation, or it's not in the future. They say it's already happened. It all happened. It was done by 70 AD. Look, you've got to spiritualize the text so much. When Titus came in, he didn't go into the temple and defile it. There was never an event that took place under Titus that came on the whole world so bad, so dramatic that no one could have survived. Not to mention the angel Gabriel who is giving this vision to Daniel is the same angel who appeared to Mary and Nazareth of what will happen during the millennial reign. He, Messiah, this baby that you're going to have will be great, will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's never happened. 
So again, here's a big picture, verse 25, 69 weeks, what happens? Verse 26, this interval of time, it's been at least 2,000 years. Verse 27, the 70th week. So it's during the 70th week that the prince was to come. He's given many names, the beast, the little horn. Most of us know him by the Antichrist. Further, we're told in the middle of the week, in verse 27, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So again, that assumes the temple has been rebuilt. Could it be rebuilt before the rapture? Anything's possible. But it has to be completed before the midpoint of this seven years. Now, remember, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, according to this verse, starts with the covenant that he makes. So it doesn't start with the rapture of the church, so you will often hear me over the years say seven plus years. Now, it appears from Scripture it would be very short. I mean, we've seen just kind of a dress rehearsal with COVID. You know, it's like so dramatic. All the nations of the world want to come together because we've got, you know, we had this disease. It wasn't as bad as they thought, but... When there are millions and millions of evangelical Christians missing, people say, well, you teach a secret rapture. We don't teach anything secret. It will be no secret when millions of people are gone across the planet. When planes have crashed, when operations have ceased, millions of people missing. It will be a perfect platform and atmosphere for this false one to come. So in the middle of the week, this powerful dictator is going to come in. He's going to break the covenant, and he's going to let them, he's not going to allow them to to, uh, offer sacrifice. He'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. And notice, and on the wing of abominations, remember, we're trying to remember what the abomination of desolation is, right? I know that was at the beginning of the sermon, but that's where we're going. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction. Abominations. Circle the little letter S. You can, if you want, you can put the number two above it. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, and then there's another form of a noun for three or more. This is a dual. Sometimes I'll look at a new children's Bible. I want to see how accurate it is. Well, I go right to Genesis, and I see what they have at the garden where God put cherubim with a flaming sword of fire. And if they have one angel, I know right off they're not even accurate. If they have five angels, I know they're not accurate because it's a duel in Hebrew. Two angels were placed there at the entrance. This is a duel. There are two abominations that take place. 2 Thessalonians 2 indicates that he will make himself out to be God. That is, he'll break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. And he'll also break the second commandment and that he'll make an image of himself and ask people, according to Revelation 13, to worship it. Two gross abominations. And upon the wing of abominations, he shall come desolating. He shall come desolating. Now, the word abomination It's used like in places like 1 Kings 11. It's typically used in reference to idolatry. God hates idolatry. And idolatry can take many expressions even in our day. It can be translated abhorrent or detestable. And he is going to desolate, make the temple defiled, make it dry and meaningless, by what he is going to do. Now, there's a dress rehearsal for this. There are three times in the prophet Daniel 
where the abomination of desolation is spoken of twice in reference to the coming Antichrist, and once in reference to another man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He rules as king from 175 to 164 B.C. He goes into the temple, and he offers a pig in the Holy of Holies to mock the Jewish people. And Daniel 11, the first half, speaks of that as the abomination of desolation. The second half of Daniel 11 goes all the way into the future of another coming king who will do the same thing, but it hasn't yet happened. Now, let me just say parenthetically, the liberals hate the prophet Daniel. They say he lived for centuries, I say centuries, since about 1800, yeah, a few centuries. The liberal scholars, largely out of Europe, said, well, Daniel didn't live 600 years before Christ. He lived about 200 years after Christ. He was a historian. He was writing after the fact. Well, we found something in 1949 called the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was the start, and for the next 20 years, they kept finding in caves and different places all these scrolls. In fact, recently as the 90s, they found a few more. And we found copies, they say, we archaeologists and so forth. Uh, I don't take any credit for finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found, they found scrolls, complete scrolls of the prophet Daniel, dated some 200, some 250 years before Christ, which smushed their argument that it was a second century A.D. Why is that significant? Because of the first half of Daniel 11. Even if Daniel lived 250 years before Christ, he's writing about an event that had never yet happened. And so between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years, right? And there are some intertestament books. In the first edition of the King James 1611, those were included. But in the preface, it said, we don't believe these are inspired, but we want to include them to help you to see some of the history that transpired in Jewish life. When the Catholics came out and made them part of their canon of Scripture and began to mock the Jewish, I mean, the, the English believers who put out the King James, they immediately took them out in 1613. But in one of those books, it's called First Maccabees. And in First Maccabees, he describes precisely what Antiochus did. Not only does that book describe it, but other forms of secular history. So Daniel chapters 9 and 12 looked down the corridors of time at the devil's superman who upon the wing of abominations, the word wing refers to an overpowering influence, he will come with both signs and wonders as Paul will affirm until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on this one who makes desolate. And that will be the great tribulation period. Jesus said, when this event happens, look out, because in Matthew 24, 21, then there will be great tribulation. So we go from tribulation to great tribulation. How do we know that what we studied in verses 4 through 14 was the first half of the tribulation period in Matthew 24? Because the midpoint event is given to us by the prophet Daniel. So after Matthew 24, 15, you come into the second half of the tribulation, and Jesus said, then there will be great tribulation like the world has never seen in all of human history. And God will terminate this guy. He will ultimately throw him alive into the lake of fire. He is the one, Paul says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He makes himself sit in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
So Jesus said, when you see this event called the abomination of desolation, look out. He exalts himself above every so-called God in the temple of God. Satan has always wanted to be worshiped. That's what his fall was about, right? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. His dream will come true and that the world will worship the evil one through his antichrist. And when that happens, as Daniel 12, 1 says, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus, again, is reading right off the prophet Daniel. Now, don't glaze over on me. <laughs> Let me make three applications and I'm done, all right? Application number one. Why is this section of Scripture important? Number one, fulfilled prophecy informs us that the Bible is truly the Word of God. I don't know about you, but to me, this is a fantastic prophecy, a fantastic prophecy that God gave the prophet Daniel. It is so precise that, again, they want to call him a historian, but they're kicking up against Jesus because he said, we read it three times already this morning, listen to what Daniel the prophet said. So their argument is with Yeshua, it's not with me. And when you read this, it is so incredible. You know there's no prophecy in any other book on earth but the Bible. You ask those Mormons, show me one prophecy in your book of Mormon. They can't show you one. You ask a Muslim, show me one prophecy in your Quran. They can't show you one. Neither can the Hindus with their Vedas, Upanishads, none. Only God knows the future, and it's one of the internal proofs that we know the Bible is God's word. Secondly, fulfilled prophecy informs us that we're in the season of Jesus' return. We're in the season of his return. Again, nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place, but the second coming is a prophetically driven event. And think about this prophet who wrote thousands of years ago. For this to happen, what he has described, there has to be the regathering of the Jewish people. We've seen that. Secondly, they have to be reestablished as a nation. Isaiah 66, 8 prophesied that. And one day they became a nation. Third, they would have to reoccupy the city of Jerusalem. And indeed, the Six-Day War, June 7th, 1967, that happened. Why is that significant? Because when you read the prophet Zechariah, it tells us in chapter 4, chapter 10, chapter 12, not to mention what Jesus says in Luke 21, 24, that the nations of the world are going to come against Jerusalem. It's not surprising that when Israel was recaptured, the chief rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, proclaimed, we have taken the city of God, we are entering the messianic era for the Jewish people. He knew of its great significance. Yet you look at the United States of America, you look at the United Nations, you look at the European Union, you look at the Vatican, you look at many other countries of the world, and they are arguing that all or part of Jerusalem should be turned over. We're in the season. No one knows the day or the hour, but we're in the season. Third, fulfilled prophecy informs us that we need to be ready for Jesus' return. 
We need to understand that we need to be ready because the events that God wrote and spoke about centuries ago are coming to a climax. And if you've been saved, you should be ready. You shouldn't be sitting on your hands. Talked to a guy yesterday. All he was doing was looking for excuses of why he can't find a good church. And my director of communications, Rick Forshner, wrote him a great letter. I called him. It was just one excuse after another why there's not a good church in America. If you want to find an excuse to disobey God, you can find one. Sermons are too long. No one said hi to me. You can find an excuse. Oh, it's filled with hypocrites. You can find an excuse. Peter, when he writes about prophecy, he concludes, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And I would say, if you're not saved, if the trumpet of God sounds today and the people of God are caught up in the air, the 70th week shortly thereafter will begin when the covenant is signed. You say, I'll get right then. We'll see you next time. You won't get right. It will be impossible for you to get right. The only people who are saved during the 70th week are those who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. Now, our Holy Father, people may think that these are dark days, but we know these are child's play compared to what is coming you are coming. Your word promises it. But I would ask you, wherever you may be, is he coming for you? Don't say, I hope so. I think so. You need to be able to say, I know so. You need to be able to say, I know I am saved. And you can do nothing to earn it. You need a righteousness that needs to be gifted to you by the grace of God. You need to call upon Jesus and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, for those of us who have done that, may we never be ashamed. May we realize that in this day of lukewarmness, in this day of gross compromise, that we need to be alert. That we need to watch and wait and look and serve because the time will come, you said, when we'll be unable to work. So help us to care for the people we know Help us to serve the body of Christ. And when Jesus comes, he'll be able to say to each of us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We ask it in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.